temaso, yamin antanesa, kohe kamaha fodami hoha kodra wistotu, paijau woreo fo eti churikoi. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With us is the lovely Bianca Mangum. Hello. And the irreplaceable William Manis. Hello. That's just what I want to hear, too. <laughs> well, that, that it's true. We've been trying, but we couldn't find anyone. <laughs> Tell that to my boss. That would be good. <laughs> Maybe if we could get DJP on here every day. But then we wouldn't want to, because we couldn't do Dothraki, which we will do sometime in the future. Sometime in the future. Not this episode, but sometime. Um, Time-sensitive announcements are weird on this podcast, because obviously I have to sort of gauge when the podcast is going to drop, but I think this is going to drop, and then later in the week... I'm going to be on another podcast called Ted Poolery. I don't know. Ted <laughs> Poolery? What, what does that mean? It's... So, you know how we're kind of niche? Yeah. In, in that we're in the Conlang community? This is a podcast put on by fans of another podcast. For it's the people m- who hang out in the chat room of that other podcast. A meta-podcast. Yes. And wow. I have a feeling that they probably have um, a larger audience than we do. Huh. So there's going to be a rift in the space-time continuum from that much meta? <laughs> it may be. I don't know. Anything you can do, I can do meta. Yeah, okay. Wow. A podcast about a podcast. <laughs> It's a podcast about a particularly popular podcast. Okay. Um, but, but what is it? What is it about at the very least? Well, so I have to Google it. For the, it's for, like, they, they actually started a podcast network for this community that surrounded uh, the morning stream, which is uh, Scott Johnson's morning live stream and podcast. And I, who is this person? Oh, well, he's 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 popular among podcast listeners. <laughs> okay, my brain is going to turn into a black what? hole. <laughs> <laughs> what is the podcast that Tad Poolery is about? The Morning Stream. Okay, and what is that about? It's just a morning show about really? podcasts. No, it it's a morning show. It's news and okay. celebrity okay. gossip and okay. a bunch of crap. Okay. Okay. Phew, for a minute there, I was... Wow. So why are you there, then? This is because I'm also a fan of that uh, podcast. All right. And he has experience. And With this yeah. fine show. Felt like asking them whether I could be on their show. The Tad Poolery, not the other podcast, because I'm not going to be on that one unless I call in. <laughs> Let's get off the subject. This is a weird subject. It, it is into a very something. weird subject. You brought it up. It turned into something really bizarre, and I was hoping to keep it keep the announcement short so I could edit it out in case I was wrong. Anyway, <laughs> how are you guys done? Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm good. I'm all right. The okay. weather here continues to be really strange. He was in the high 40s today in February in Wisconsin, which is just wrong. That is weird. I think it's about the same over here. Like, we had two inches of snow, which I think was pretty miraculous. And now it's just like, I think, six or seven degrees Celsius, which I think is around the 45 mark Uh in Fahrenheit. So I'm like, well, it went cold and it went minus zero, so it felt like winter for about two days. And now it just feels kind of like spring because it got warm again. So I'm kind of thrown off. Well, but UK doesn't get bad winters that much anyway, does it? Not unless you go up north, I don't think. Um, 
here it actually snowed pretty significantly um, during the same days that um, my niece and nephew were here. Did they have fun? Well, uh, how old are they? Uh, two and four. Oh, they can go run around. Yeah, did they have fun? Um, well, yeah. Um, was it taller than them? We couldn't actually have them outside very much because Mom was concerned about them because it was very, very cold. Uh-huh. I suppose. Yeah. They've not seen very, very cold, but yeah. But they did, they did, uh, they did make some tiny snowmen. Oh, how cute! <laughs> Which have I melted made, by now. I made a snowman too. You made a snowman? Yeah. Okay. Used like the entire yard worth of snow to make a snowman, but yeah. See, our problem was not not enough snow. At least once the snow actually came down very well. The problem was that the sn- it was too cold. Oh yeah, that's no good. Stick. Anyway. Very good snowball making snow because it was the kind of like wet stuff that gets nice and compact. Anyway, we'll stop talking about snow. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. This is this has turned into the the digressions podcast. <laughs> uh, we need to actually talk about what is our topic today. Our topic is noun incorporation. Woohoo! And. Since I will probably uh, just screw up the definition anyway, William, why don't you just explain what noun incorporation is? Noun incorporation is simply a term to describe what happens when a noun is forced to join company with a verb to form a new lexical item. So, in other words, it's the... It's the does it, so it includes compounding. Just straight up compounding, it, right? It's yeah. We're going to talk about an entire hierarchy from very simple noun incorporation up to much scarier kinds of noun incorporation, and certainly the simplest type looks an awful lot like compounding that we're used to. Um, English really doesn't do this very often. Um, typically, what we have is noun noun compounds, and when a gerund ends up as the second element, once in a blue moon. We will pull out a new verb phrase that looks like noun incorporation, like babysit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very rare for English to do this. But certainly other European languages are much happier to, to do noun-verb compounding. Okay. Um, and that's it. I mean, do we want to start in on, on the, the different types? Well, yeah. Now that we, we have a basic definition, a basic, a basic we need definition. to get into the types. All right. So I'm going to... Describe this using the terms from a paper that Marianne Mithun wrote in 1984. And it was such a magnificent paper that everyone has used the same terminology since. And the paper is called The Evolution of Noun Incorporation from the journal Language. And she uses or, or describes noun, uh, noun incorporation in an implicational hierarchy. And what that means is... If you are high on the hierarchy, then that means your language will have all of the lower types as well. So, for example, if you have a language that has type 3 noun incorporation, like, for example, Mohawk, then you expect it to have both type 1 and type 2 as well. Okay. So, type 1 is the simplest kind, simple lexical incorporation. Um, It's used to define something that has a special new meaning for some sort of recurring activity. Um, In English, and and I'm using a noun compound, but the the idea is the same. Lunch money is a much more likely compound than hammer money. (laughs) Right? We can say someone is out grocery shopping, but we do not normally say someone is out ladder climbing unless, (laughs) unless a new sport has been invented. Interesting. Right? So we're talking about Recurring activities that determine that, that need to have their own lexical item. There's something special about them that they warrant a new word. Um, and that's the simplest kind. It's pretty productive in plenty of languages. It is almost always a valency-reducing operation. Hmm. That means you start off 
with a transitive verb like climb. <laughs> um, and then it becomes intransitive once it becomes, in, becomes something like ladder climbing. And how do we know? Um, in ergative languages, it will be obvious from case marking. In, in some languages, the transfer into a intransitive state may change the conjugation or may have some other morphology present to say, ah, this is intransitive. So that's how we know um, that this simple incorporation is valency reducing. Okay. I have uh, sort of a clarifying question. Um, okay. When you're talking about this, it seems to me like if you're talking about just the simplest kind of uh, noun incorporation, you are still talking about a compound where there is a noun and a verb, and then the result is, is a verb. verb. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I'm using I'm using pseudo English examples that often have two nouns. Just to give an example, like I said, English doesn't really do this particularly. Yeah, I have a feeling that uh, some of the the meanings of of the the lexical incorporation might be done in English with conversion instead. Right, exactly. Or we borrow some highfalutin vocabulary from Latin or Greek especially is very partial to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. All right, so that's simple type 1 lexical incorporation. Pretty simple. Next is type 2 and is plays a really neat trick. It's like type 1, but instead of reducing the valency of the verb, it allows a new direct object. Mm-hmm. This tends to be highly related to animacy. So rather than I washed the baby's hair, you would say I hair washed the baby. <laughs> the reason this is related to animacy is because we want people and sometimes animals to be core arguments of our vocabulary, of, of our verbs. And when we talk about, you know, I hurt myself in the thumb or I washed, you know, someone's hair, all of these, the body part is relevant but incidental. We care much more about the person. Okay. So body part incorporation is very, very likely in this kind of verb. Hmm. You sound pensive, George. Well, I'm just thinking about different things. Um I'm trying to think, because my mind goes to Chinese so often, I'm thinking of whether verb object, uh, the verb object structure in Chinese, uh, qualifies as just a type one. Uh, is or, that really incorporation? Do you have, well, we can talk in a little bit about tests for determining incorporation in isolating languages. It's an interesting problem. Um, but let's save that until we've covered all the types. Yeah, I, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So type one, you get an intransitive verb out the other end. Type two, you get another transitive verb, and it's a kind of possessor raising. You, you, you want to keep your, your people and, and core arguments central and apparent without having a bunch of arguments stuck in your verb. So type three is very interesting, and it's basically a discourse trick. Okay. Old information is backgrounded by becoming incorporated. So in type 1 and type 2, there tend to be not universally usable in the sense that both of those define a particular activity that requires some – it happens so often that it deserves its own lexical term. Type 3, which is basically discourse incorporation – you're much more likely to have a single one-off kind of thing mm-hmm. um, because of what's happening. Information that has been introduced in the discourse is kept backgrounded by being incorporated. So Mithun describes this as type one reduces argument salience within the verb. Mm-hmm. Type two reduces um, item salience within the clause and type 3 reduces salience within the discourse. So this is actually kind of tricky, and the only way you can give really good examples of this is to have um, examples of entire conversations. I recommend you Google papers on Mohawk grammar 
Okay. Um, because first, um, Mithyun, that's her special language, and there are a bunch of papers addressing this very issue. Um, how this works, um, when does an item get incorporated, when does it come back out as part of the larger discourse and, and narratives. All right, so that's type three. Are we ready to move on to type four? Yeah. We may kind of go back and revisit these. Sure, but... sure, sure. That, that makes sense. So type four is classifying non-incorporation. So uh, one sort of contrived example is I animal hunt the deer. Interesting. Now, it's somewhat relevant that the incorporated elements tend to get reduced over time. Um, and it quickly becomes less incorporation or looks less like incorporation and looks more like class grammar over time. And that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what was I going to add? Right. And mostly what this allows you to do is to not overtly state um, the direct object at all. Okay. Right? You have the um, class incorporation or the classification, classificatory incorporation um, lets you talk and say repeated things about a discourse topic without having to keep naming it over again or using a pronoun. You have this reduced incorporated noun that just becomes part of your verb. All right. So that's that. And that's, like I said, this is a hierarchy. If you've got verbs in your language that do classifying incorporation of some sort, then it's very likely it's going to have all of the other types to some degree or another. I see. All right. So those are the four types. Um, I've not really talked about how this incorporation happens um, in terms of just morphology and phonotactics. And there are two possibilities. The order of the elements is, simply depends on your language. Is it head final or head initial? And that will determine that in the normal way. Is your language isolating or mostly isolating, or is it highly synthetic? Most of us are used to thinking about noun incorporation operating in synthetic languages, like especially languages of North America. Yeah. But there are plenty of mostly isolating languages that have what is noun incorporation. How can you tell that it is noun incorporation? Word order stuff. Where does your subject fall? If you have a VSO language and it looks like you're seeing VOS, then you may want to consider the possibility that that's incorporation. Okay. Where can your adverbs go? Where are enclitics going? So if your enclitic follows a noun verb or verb noun cluster when you would otherwise expect it to go immediately after one of those or the other of those, then you can say, ah, this whole thing is being thought of as a single unit, even though both lexical items still have their accent, and even though people think of them as separate words still. They're operating as noun incorporation. Okay. Well, that kind of answers my question. I thought it might. Um, So, in Chinese, there are these... Special lexical items that are, um, the, you'll hear them called verb objects, but basically it's the verb and the object taken together. And I was thinking about whether those were um, noun incorporation based on on the, the type 1 definition, because mm-hmm. you have stuff like fan is to eat. It's literally eat rice. Right. But um, I think... You can't, yeah, you can have verb suffixes come between the verb and the object, even though they are sort of lexicalized. Yeah, and then that's just a a phrase. That's not a, that's not incorporation. It's it's more like they're a collection of idioms than. Co locations, yes. Yeah, than, than really, um, than really any, anything that, any kind of. Uh, compounding. Another one would be shui jiao, where shui is to sleep and jiao is uh, a period of time when uh, when you're sleeping. There's not an easy way to translate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but you can also have shui yi jiao. Right, so that's definitely not... The thing, which is a different meaning. Sort of right. more take a nap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when you can... When both words are operating independently, then then 
it's probably the case that you're not you're not having incorporation. Yeah, it seems sort of like a gray area because sometimes it's 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 a little bit awkward. But anyway, right. Well, this is this is why we have field linguists who go out and they collect data and then they have arguments about what's actually going on. And they say, no, the perfective particle has moved off to the right of the verb and now it's following a noun, therefore incorporation. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> um. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, my examples so far have been I've been using um, incorporation of basically direct objects, mm-hmm. but that is by no means the only possibility. Uh, location and instrument are especially common, so that you could say something like "I market go." <laughs> Interesting. Now, is uh, there is there a hierarchy of which ones are more common than others, or? Well, not that I know. Direct object is definitely the most common. It's all over the literature with these others somewhat less likely. Okay. Um, and I've mentioned before my love of instrumental prefixes as derivational elements, and those are an example of a particular kind of non-incorporation that got fossilized and then grammaticalized. I see. Interesting, because this whole time I've been quiet, but I'm thinking of how to make this into some sort of derivational thing. Right, right. Um, and, uh, right. Um, so far, we've also been using compounds with verbs that are transitive. Even with type 1, and you end up with an intransitive verb, the core verb is basically transitive. But it is possible, like I said with the market go example, um, but it's possible to have other kinds of intransitive verbs be or take noun incorporation. Hmm. Um, Could you use the noun incorporation with a verb that is strictly intransitive in order to say something because you don't have a happy transitive equivalent? Uh, that's interesting. I don't know. I would think not. Okay. Because here's the thing. Noun incorporation is always special. There is no language in which you have an incorporated noun statement that does not have an equivalent that does not use the incorporation available. Hmm. Okay. Okay. It's intriguing. Yeah. I'll think about it. Right, so incorporation gets used for different kinds of things. Now, type 1 is more clearly lexical, but the other ones, you're going to have a simple non-incorporating statement is always going to be available as another possibility. All right. Um, What I was saying about intransitive verbs, it is possible... To have an intransitive verb incorporate the subject, this is very rare. But again, Mohawk, my favorite example of wonderful incorporation madness, um, will do this. So that you have basically double subject marking where you have the incorporated noun and the necessary verb affixes. Can you give us an example? I do not have a Mohawk example at hand. Um, Somebody else talk and I can look one up. <laughs> we'll just pause and then we can edit it. Or we could do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, would it be something like I am self-washing? Or No, no. Um self would be an object in that case. That's true. Like something like um Well, it's kind of hard to do it in English cuz you're not going to get anything. No, you can say things like the house is dark. It house darks. <laughs> but you so, wouldn't have like the it there in the third person. Oh no! Yes, you would. You would Just in fact. It. Yes. Okay. Yes, that's the part that makes it funky. A... It seems like. But you do so, that for like so, weather verbs. You could. Yeah. So the the there might be dummy um, pronouns when in those cases. Um, I'm trying to think what I was going to say. Um, it seems like the the whole thing kind of is more about the object side than the subject side, particularly since the type 1 involves reducing valency. Right. You can't reduce the valency of a, a um, of a, an intransitive verb any further. Well, yeah, I'm not sure where these intransitive incorporating the subjects fall into the theory of non-incorporation. 
certainly people have followed up Mithune's work with various kinds of harping on this or that point she makes. So this is definitely still an open issue. Um, for a while, it was very, very popular. There were a flurry of papers. Don't you love it when when uh, uh, linguists don't know what's going on? I do actually. It's kind of it's it's interesting. Isn't that always like, <laughs> seriously? I don't think it's always, but it's it's, fairly... it's most of the time. If anyone <laughs> claims that they are hard and solid about knowing anything, I'm going to be very suspicious. Well, it's a science. Yeah, but it's not a hard science. It's a social science, I guess. No. Well, it's oh, kind well, of a hard no, science, no, no, but... No, 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 What I mean is, in science, nothing is ever certain. Yeah, but this is even squishier than other sciences. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm, I'm staring at my iPad here, looking at this paper again. Another example she gives is from Watla Nawat, um, which has two sentences for hail is falling. Huh. So you can say you can say um uh which means hail is falling, but that's weird. There's something weird about that statement. Normally you would say tasiwetsi, which is just it's hailing. So that's another point is when you are talking about a completely boring normal event, like it's hailing, the non incorporated version draws attention to the object or the, the part that's been pulled out. Okay. If it's you, not raining, it's hailing. Right, exactly. If you say, I door knocked, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not very interesting. But if you say, I knocked on the door, then yes, you're making a contrast. You know, I knocked mm. on the door instead of his head or whatever. <laughs> right, so these are little things we can think about um, with incorporation beyond just the normal lexical stuff. Mm-hmm. Maybe I knocked on the door rather than ringing the doorbell. Sure, sure. Or doorbell ringing. Whatever. When you say, when you pull it out, you have, for whatever reason, drawn attention to the, the element that's been pulled out. That's an interesting sort of uh, concept for discourse. And that's, that's something that we try to mention on the show is various ways you can use things for discourse and for... Um, focus and stuff because a lot of conlangers don't necessarily do much discourse stuff. Right. And sometimes, I mean, some things that happen in grammar don't make sense unless you think about discourse. Type 3 noun incorporation makes no sense outside of a discourse context. Half the time, in my opinion, passives and antipassives make no sense outside of a discourse context. (laughs) So uh, the example um, in the paper that she gives for intransitives is the sentence, he is a nice person, is all one word. De- decomposing into he, person, and nice. Uh-huh. So that's, that's it seems like mostly um, what we would call statives are being uh, incorporated this way. Now, I'm, uh, uh, I was about to ask a question, but I realize now that it doesn't make much sense. I was going to ask about whether you can have pronouns incorporated. No. But it feels like having pronouns incorporated would end up being something much more of like a grammatical agreement thing. Yeah, that's just agreement. Yeah. Oh, here's another good example. All one word for he stole my car. <laughs> so he car stole me. Wow. Right. So just some little examples. Now, like I said, for the classificatory incorporation, you expect to have reduced elements. The normal word for animal may be different when it's incorporated than when it's not incorporated. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is true across the other types of incorporation as well. You might have... um, different changes to words. And in fact, you might have suppletion. You might have one word for animal when it's floating around on its own and a completely different item bearing no historical relationship at all to the outside world for animal once it gets shoved into the verb. So I have all kinds of, all four kinds of noun incorporation in my language, Kahzai. And in my dictionary, I have to, for some words, give both a Noun incorporation form, 
and a verb incorporation form, where noun incorporation is just, you know, or um, noun incorporation and noun compound. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, there are rules mostly, but some words I just decided should not follow the rules. So, yeah. And that's that's an irregularity thing, so... Yes. I, I presume that the most common words are the most likely to have the most radical Absolutely. differences. The word for body in Kachtai has reduced to a single consonant sound. <laughs> wow. Because in, in, in these languages, you do not say, I saw Bob. You say, I body saw Bob. Okay. Whose watch is going off? It's my iPod. I thought I turned it off. <laughs> but it's like, no, you have email. I'm like, no, I told you, one, not to check for email, and two, not to beep every time I have an email. So anyway. Okay. Um, okay. What else did I want to talk about? Ooh, argument stranding. This is uh, – uh, the first time I saw this, my, my little brain just had a twitch and an explosion. In some languages, noun incorporation, you can incorporate the noun, but leave all of its modifying things floating around in the rest of the sentence. <laughs> I house saw that, meaning I saw that house. Or even stranger yet, I house saw blue. Um, okay. Yes, that's called argument stranding. I recommend you Google that because I don't fully understand all of the rules of that. I'm sure there are rules. I'm sure that there are linguists who have ideas about those rules, but I do not know those rules. <laughs> I house saw blue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, it gets people agitated because it is awfully weird. When I say people, I mean linguists. So I take it that this is not the most common way for that No, to No, stranding is unusual. It happens. That... Is it more like if there are more elements in the phrase that it won't get incorporated most of the time? I I have no idea. That that takes us into theory. Um, I do not do stranding in any language I've invented, and I'm not brave enough to try it yet. I would need to read more papers. Well, I really like this um, topic. This has been another uh, William-centric episode, because I had... knew nothing about this stuff before now. But now I'm thinking maybe I will try to use it somewhere. Yeah, if you can find Mithun's paper, it's just great. It's full of chock full of examples, but you need to have access to JSTOR, so you need to be either in college or have access to a library that will let you yeah, view not, papers that way. Not happening right now. But um, Bianca, do you have any thoughts on this? stuff before we move on? Hmm, I was thinking with the stranding, if it happens to happen in a language with kind of either like a case agreement or gender agreement that happens on the adjective, would it still have that or is it just going to be in some sort of neutral form? I cannot answer that question. Okay. Sorry. Fair enough. Yeah. It's kind of an in-depth question. That would would require us to (laughs) find... uh, a comparative study on this kind of thing. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it happened both ways anyway. Yeah. Oh, God. So, <laughs> I just found an example from Oneida. Um, wow. You can have the possessor be stranded. I housebought John. <laughs> and Oneida has no case marking. <laughs> That's... That seems odd specifically you know i house bought john that particular sentence seems like it could have some other alternative meaning. i mean it's it's kind of i mean it make it's easier and more comfortable for me like i hair washed john doesn't twist my brain as much as this one does even though there's clearly the, the same sort of possession possessive um arrangement but it seems less wrenching with um, maybe because possession. Maybe because hair would almost always be inalienable. Right. So Alienability seems to be something. It's part of him, so you're still doing stuff to him. Exactly. Whereas a house is not part of him. 
unless you believe in some strange spiritual things. Yeah, yeah. John's a ghost. Well, I think maybe we can move on. Oh, in my fact, maybe God. we should move <gasps> on to our featured conlang today, which is Give A. Uh, it was created by. What's the name? Oh, what is his name? Uh, da, 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 da. Rick something. Give me a second here. Uh, Rick Roots. Rick or at least Roots. that's that, that's the name he uses for his novels. Rick Roots. Sounds <laughs> like a pseudonym. Could be. But um Thick Roots. Um So first of all, we were looking at this at the top of the show and looking at the phonology page and at this very bizarre orthography that is Severely allergic to diacritics to the point of doing some very strange spellings. Yes. It's a very um, strange inventory as well. Yeah. If you want to try to pronounce anything in this language, you're going to want to look at the, the phonology page first so that you know what the heck anything is. Is, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said at the time, for those of us conlangers who were around on the internet early doing diacritics was likely to get you hate mail um, just because there was no way to guarantee that anyone you might want to communicate with would get the diacritics intact, <laughs> right? If it wasn't ASCII, it wasn't, there was no way to guarantee that it was getting wherever, to anyone else. Um, so I, I'm a little more sympathetic to that, but this language takes it to pretty remarkable extremes. The vowels especially have all sorts of funkiness to accommodate. Yeah, it's mainly the vowels that go odd. I, I, I wonder if we could have maybe found some other spellings even than what he chose, because some There's of them are... There's quite a few things that just go odd. In any case, yeah. I appreciate that the syllable structure is reasonably complex and needs to give it, gives a nice overview of the various possibilities available. Uh-huh. True. Mm-hmm. He has fairly good. Um, I'm not really in love with the um, organization here because he has phonology, words, objects, actions, modifiers, clauses. Seems like he's trying to use some very non-standard um, terms. Oh God! It's full of non-standard terms for. For no, oh, there was a thing. No discern- discernible purpose. This feels very much like a beginning language. I wouldn't say noobish because he's gotten a little bit past that first stage. I feel like he's on the second stage where he's discovered new things. He's trying to put them in, but there's a lot of weird, different things going on, and he doesn't quite have the terminology. And I'm not sure where it all fits together. Well, yeah, and he does things like. Things that I used to do, like, one one thing I used to do that I find he did was he misinterprets what an infix is, and it's actually, what he's calling an infix looks like it's actually just a suffix that comes before another suffix. Things like that. Yeah, I don't think that's entirely the issue. I think this is another language where... It's supposed to be spoken by aliens floating around in space somewhere or, you know, a, a pre-technological culture on an, an alien place, even though they're mostly like humans. Um, and so he's trying to describe a quite different uh, grammatical tradition and a different way of organizing the language. Okay, so you're thinking that he's trying to present the traditional grammar of this fictional society? Yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, so there's that. I'm trying to find the page that I saw before where he gives this description. There's a complex interaction of animacy and agency and a bunch of other things that all go into these nouns. And, and for those, it made sense to me that he concocted new vocabulary. Okay. Because the, the dividing lines don't match at all. Um, 
what we would expect for nouns in English necessarily, or any human language for that matter. Okay. And, but but the problem is, is then we see a lot that's very familiar, which gives us a warm, cozy feeling. Oh, this is a human language, but it's not really. Hmm. At least that would make up for all of the weird, like, low vowels. <laughs> it is heavy on low vowels. It's very heavy on low vowels. It's it's just kind of odd in many ways. But it is odd. It's also huge. A tremendous amount of work went into this. See, nothing nothing I'm seeing in this language looks particularly alien to me. This may be because I keep not understanding something or. Yeah, let me find... The problem is, is the organization's all this. Ooh, I do like the way he puts the pronoun Or, not pronouns. <clears throat> prepositions. He actually gives a little picture, which is interesting, because it, trying to describe pronouns can be a difficult thing. And, like, I'll often gloss my pronouns with something, you mean, and it won't you be... You mean prepositions. Prepositions, I'm sorry. Adpositions. I'll say that. Maybe they'll make me less confused. Um... So I'll usually gloss something with a somewhat equivalent adposition, but it won't be quite right because where you're going to use it is going to be different. So I have something that's like on, but it's not going to be always like on in English. It's basically sticking to anything, not like it doesn't make sense. The adhesive case. Yeah, but it's a... (laughs) preposition so anyway i kind of like that he went he went through a lot of effort drawing these pictures yeah it is very helpful it's very interesting he has one that's swas or swas maybe that's from place to place around and it has a picture of like four different places with arrows going to all of them (laughs) um so one rather frustrating thing about the site is there's Many sections have lots of examples, which is good. And the examples are given in the native script, in IPA, in the romanization, and then the translation. Nowhere in there is that a gloss. (laughs) I saw that. There are a a rare number of glosses, but mostly it's presented this way. So it sometimes makes it hard to figure out what is going on grammatically. Yes. Mm, Glossing is important. It By is. the way, I might link in the show notes. I I tweeted this out from the Conlangery Twitter, but there, um, Carson Becker made a WordPress add-on for glossing. Yes, yes, everyone is in love with him for that now. I'm seeing. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, this language has no not much glossing and really makes the examples kind of useless. It's just kind of it looks pretty. It looks good. Yeah, I could. I wish. Yes, I wish for more. Um, what was I going to say? So there's an interesting system of word reduction that happens um, as part of grammar, and that's all very nicely described with lots of examples. So I appreciate that. This is definitely not highly regular. I mean, in this regard, it's not highly regular. There are other parts of the language which are surprisingly regular, but. What happens to nouns makes up for it. Oh, um, and we were looking at this before. He actually made some attempt to explain the prosody and the sentence level or clause level intonation patterns. Mm-hmm. It was very... Um, he basically just kind of drew pitched contours. Um, it's interesting. It's still... Um, there's still the problem of, you know, it's kind of hard to explain prosody in the first place because there's no terms. But It is a little bit difficult. Um, also, this is a lot of different intonation patterns. It is. I'm not sure if this is, this is quite natural. Uh, the dictionary is enormous. Mm-hmm. And not terrible. Although I wish the definitions were longer, but they're not completely... A lot of them are very simple, um, but others are a little bit more complicated. So So what is this that he's saying? Search for a Givet translation of a Ramajal word. Right, because he has other languages. 
That's weird. Um, interesting like said, that he. Interesting that he put register in the dictionary. Uh huh. That's kind of right. So he's got a normal just alphabetical search, but then he has word group searches. So you can click on you know if you want a list of all verbal particles. Voila, there they are. But if you want to see everything in the formal register, which is definitely less than, see that seems to be almost entirely pronouns and a few nouns and some sort of conjunctions that do not have definitions currently. Anyway, so like I said, this language is presented on a web page that is sort of in-world. It presents itself as documenting the reality of this particular place. Uh Uh-huh. Such that the dates on the bottom of the pages are in some alien dating system. Yes, that annoys me. I do not know what Teshunun 2.18 is, but that's when this page was updated. Yeah, um, I want to say something about that. It's all nice and good to have your own calendar system, that's fine. But if you're going to put, you know, this page was last updated on kind of thing, which... A lot of people don't do on websites anymore anyway. But if you're going to date stuff, maybe, you know, you can have that for flavor in there. But also give us the regular Gregorian date, please. (laughs) Because it just is easier. That's just completely useless. It's kind of like with having this in the in-world perspective. It's nice you have the terminology and all, but... Just put it side by side with the real thing. If you really want to have it there for us to see it, put it by the real thing. Put it side by side. If not, I'm going to lose all interest. Mostly it's confusing. Oh, there's a special derogatory register. That's good. Oh, wow. Why is there a derogatory word for... Okay, that's a bizarre collection of words. Uh, Yeah, Um, no, it's... it's, There's all... There's four words. Yeah. What I like is the additional information section, especially, where he does things like he explains the cultural cognitive metaphors. Uh Uh-huh. Right? Life is a river. Emotion is centered in the stomach. Ah. Instinct is centered in the liver. Right. Body part names can be used metonymically to represent the actions that body part undertakes, which... What would the verb for hair mean? Anyway. To entangle. Um, to entangle. To or strangle. In my, case, in my case, to just that's like, that's <laughs> To be absent. Right. So that's a nice touch. And then he has, you know, other things like uh, references to math and, and counting. So that sort of stuff. Color terms, which George will hate because there's an... Is there an orange? Oh, there's an orange. And pinks. and In fact, there are two pinks. He does have interlinear glosses on his translations. Yes. So that um, no recording that I can see, but... Wow, his writing system takes up a lot of space. Yes. And can we talk slightly about that script? It's just... Oh, no. I wish it wasn't there. It's very um, complicated. It is complicated. For it doesn't look that complicated. It looks very much like a Hangul-type construction. Uh-huh. It, it looks this... like it's a composite thing. Yeah. Or however you'd say it. Let's actually look at what the what he says about it. Okay. See, I'm, I can't say anything about writing systems because I universally hate invented writing systems except for two or three or four. Really? Yeah, so I don't... I don't and this one is by no means, by no means, the worst I have ever seen. Oh, okay, no. Okay, so it, no, no, it, no. he arranges stuff in, in syllable blocks. It's not the worst we've ever seen, yeah, but... Which makes it solidly Hangul-like. Yeah, it is, but I don't know. It's just the particular strokes and stuff. Like, there's a curlicue in here, which... I've done that in the past, and I realized it was a stupid thing to do. <laughs> if George does say so himself. <laughs> no, well, no. When you have any kind of spiraling thing, that just it's, it's it's too hard to do. 
Yeah, it's not. No, it's not. One or two of these characters remind me of Taoist charm writing. Really? You know, this, whatever. So we don't need to go into Chinese magic. But anyway, it's, yes, it's a Hangul-like script. And it's very... And he invented a font with it that is being blasted up to my browser, which I thought was a clever piece of technology. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else? There are other languages here that he has described. The, the, I think it's it's worthwhile organizationally. I mean, there are one or two things about the organization that are a bit funky, but I've certainly seen much, much worse. So people might find this interesting. Um, his collection of um, processes that happen to words in certain grammatical situations, I think, are worth looking at. Have we destroyed his website? It's not answering me right now. Same here. It just stopped. It's 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 actually his cell phone running over. <laughs> it's we apologize very, for crashing the server. It's it's an older uh, looking site. It may not be hosted on the best service, but it just stopped. <laughs> Oops. Oh well. And I was stuck looking at the dates. <laughs> In short, we will link to this language in the show notes. Yeah. And I will and then you guys can look at it yourself. But realize that all the um all the go. bizarre terminology is not uh usual. Um It's it's not usual and I'm yeah, like I said, he has some reasons for Oops, that didn't work at all. It's unusual and not necessarily welcome. Um, it makes it hard to know what's going on. I mean, it's like I said, if you want to have your own personal terminology, put it next to it, not instead of it. Yeah. As far as feedback, I didn't. we didn't get any emails that I felt uh, I should really put into the show notes. But, okay. Um, Why aren't people... Feeding back to us, back feeding us. <laughs> See, an opportunity to use non-incorporation. <laughs> uh, I don't know, but um, they need to email us now. Yeah, we have a few comments, but not that. Uh, a bunch of people asked about. Um, I inserted something about stopping at episode fifty-one, which is we're not going to do. It was just a joke, but the reason that that we take 52 to be very important is because that would be a year's worth of weekly podcasts, just to make everybody clear about that. Yeah. So there is one comment that I thought was interesting uh-huh. um, from yesterday, talking about Novogradian. Anthony yes. Dochimo says, could part of Novogradian be described as reconstructing in the same way that a form of Hebrew was revived in the 20th century, built upon the Torah and Talmud primarily, Novogradian was revived in Akanlang, built upon historical materials relating to medieval Novogradian. Or is my mind seeing a parallel connection isn't there? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, it's, it's curious because... Modern Hebrew, to some extent, is pretty much a constructed language. It's very it different really from is ancient Hebrew. Very different from ancient Hebrew. But modern Hebrew has a strong speaker community now, including a strong native speaking speaker community. So, <laughs> right, that's, that's the thing that Novogradian is missing. Is I don't get the impression there are a bunch of people urgent, you know, <laughs> learning and using it. Yeah. No. No. Nobody, nobody really wants to speak Novogradian. It's just well, I don't know. I, I don't have enough information. On the guy who invented, maybe he wants people to be speaking Novogradian. I don't know. Um, th- so that to me is, in the sense that the process was the same, and you know the materials were the same. Formerly live language became a dead language, revived to work in the modern world. In that sense, it's the same. And I agree, but I don't think there is a community waiting to use Novogradian, unlike, you know, 19th and 20th century um, 
Zionist movements and the sort of the reality of history in the 20th century sort of motivating people to form a state I would still of say Israel that and the, a language to use. I would actually say that the processes are different. I don't know a whole lot about the Hebrew sort of reconstruction process, but they didn't really run it through a bunch of sound changes or anything. That's true. They didn't. That's true. They, didn't. they from what I understand, the main thing about Hebrew was taking biblical Hebrew and adding words for modern things. And then the uh, the various changes that occurred in terms of grammar and and phonology and whatever sort of occurred naturally as no. No, no, a no, new no, population no. learned it. Nope. No, I mean, some to some degree that's true, but the grammar of the... When Ben Yehuda came out, even with his standard, it was already much changed from the biblical standard. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have an enormously long history of Hebrew still being used as a sort of learned um, religious language. Oh, so he may have been using sort of the way that rabbis were using Hebrew. Right, I mean, various things went into it. In many yeah. ways, um, modern Hebrew is, is sort of a Semitic vocabulary slammed on Yiddish semantics ah. and grammar especially. Well, that makes so you, sense. Yeah, I mean, you have some very interesting uh, aspect things um, that are pure Slavic behavior <laughs> imported into Hebrew by way of Yiddish. I thought I thought Yiddish was Germanic. Oh yes, but the, it was spoken in lots of Slavic areas. So oh, so there were aerial really, really effect. Strong, yeah, 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 really strong aerial effects from the Slavic languages as it relates to aspect. So Surprise. basically, what we're saying is that so. Just what I was contending is that Novogradian is kind of the same idea, but it's, it's not actually a reviving process. It's just um, a guy who said, if Novograd still existed, what would the Novogradian language look like today? Right. Rather than, let's found Novograd again and reclaim the old language, which is what happened with... Israel and Hebrew. That is open political and diplomatic relations with Talasa. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God, no. Anyway, yeah, so, yeah, I, I'm going to take George's point and, and saying they're not that similar just because of this, this process of running things through sound changes and so forth. Yeah. Um, this interesting thing about it, a book I got recently on conlanging, what was it from, from, from Elvish to Klingon or whatever it was? Not a great book, in my opinion, but um, there was a whole chapter on the reviving of Hebrew as an exercise in conlanging, which is interesting. I think, actually, I'm not entirely sure. I could just be making this up. Stephen Fry did a thing on, like, words, and I think he actually went into a little bit on constructed languages like Klingon and such, and I think he also brought up modern Hebrew in that context. Anyway... It's actually a pretty good series, especially if your friends and family are like, what's linguistics? Make them watch the first episode and be like, stop annoying me with stupid questions. Yeah, Stephen Fry is too big a fan of um, the generativists. I I don't need to... It was actually a fairly open thing. Well, I only really watched the first episode because... Yeah. It's still good. Stephen Fry is entertaining it was and, still... and enthusiastic, so... It was a nice source of information, especially at a beginner-type level. Not even beginner, just like complete unknown. I don't know what you'd call that. Yeah, I don't know either. Anyway, yeah, it's worth a listen. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can sort of wrap up this show. Um, I I actually have a book recommendation. It doesn't have to do with conlanging, really. It has to do with... um, just linguistics and more sort of sociolinguistics, but the last lingua franca I'm reading right now, it's pretty dense academic material, but it has a whole lot of information on weird sociolinguistic stuff. And that sounds good. Yeah. I, What's it I, called? The last lingua franca. Okay. Basically, and what are they claiming to be the last lingua franca? Well, this, this, um, I'm not sure if I get the argument. I haven't really gotten into the main 
part of his argument yet, but he argues that English will be the last global lingua franca, the or the last lingua franca in general, and then uh, by the time English is done, we will have um, machine translation good enough that we won't need a lingua franca. But that's very optimistic. Oh, this is Osler. Okay. Yeah. Oh. See, I was thinking we'd just kill ourselves before we got to the next one. <laughs> but there's still a, quite a lot of good information in there. I read this, the, the, I just read the, the weirdest thing. Persian has a weird history. Oh, goodness, yes. Because he described, like, just the, 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 what happened in the early Persian Empire where the nobles were willfully illiterate and they were using Elamite scribes, so all messages were written in Elamite, but it was you translated you you the it was dictated in Persian, translated to Elamite, and then on the other end retranslated back to Persian. Mm-hmm. Like this is that's kind of bizarre. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that was before they switched to Aramaic. Yes. So Nicholas Osler, who wrote that book, also wrote a wonderful book called Empires of the World of the No, sorry, Empires of the Word, A Language History of the World, which is very dense. This guy has a very dense writing style, but it's just full of delicious juicy tidbits. Yeah. About how language gets used and moves around and It's good for some, some socialism linguistics absolutely. Uh, stuff that you might want to incorporate into con worlds if you're one of those con langers that also does con worlds. And what's great about Osler is he does not just talk about the ones we all think about, English, Latin, Greek. He includes things like Pali, Nahuatl. So it's, it's, he covers a wider area. Oh, yeah. He, he did a whole thing on um, how like Nahuatl and Quechua were initially sort of promoted by the Spanish because they were already established lingua francas. And then yep. after they basically broke up into different languages, they still have a strong, the, the speaker communities still have a strong identity with each other, even though the, their, their language has drifted apart. Yep. And they still sort of identify as all speaking Nahuatl, all speaking Quechua. Yeah, the Inca, the leaders of the Incan Empire were not even Quechua speakers. They just used it because it was already there waiting to be used. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, and, and was widespread. Anyway, we've gone on to a new digression. Yes, this is that 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 um, maybe maybe we'll we will pull I will pull some material from that book if we ever do any con social linguistic stuff. But uh, in the meantime, Bianca, do you have any final words of wisdom? No, I gave you wisdom last week. <laughs> you must make do. <laughs> okay, you're William. probably still digesting it, so you know. Oh, it was such it was such deep wisdom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I have nothing this week. Okay, and I'm going to say Happy Conlang. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Comments, questions, and suggestions can be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, and maybe leave us a five-star review while you're at it. You can also like us at facebook.com slash conlangery, follow us on Twitter at conlangery, or circle us on Google Plus by searching for Conlangery Podcast. Our theme music was created by the band Null Device. Instead of me having to click my stupid little Jawa, and then, you know, it's sad that when I was actually in university and I could get through to see all of these things, I had zero time to look at them, other than what I needed for classes. And now that I have all the time in the world to read these things, it's like, great, you can't get in. Maybe an umlaut. Is that a band name or a self-help novel for, a self-help book for conlangers? <laughs> Ah, uh, uh, uh.
A E um yeah E O O U E Like I said points for trying I'm sleepy <sighs> Oh dear, QQ. Yeah, make it not blonk or knock, knock, knock. So I got to talking with David and Sai, and Sai is just like started to say, you know, that I should have you guys each record your on your own end. And I'm like, no, that's too complicated. That's gonna be way more work for you, isn't it? Well, I I would essentially have to sync things up. And he's like, oh, well, but... And basically I was saying, you know, it would be all out of sync. And, I, and, he's, and he's like, well, it'll be out of sync locally, but not globally. It'll still be on the same time stream. And I'm like, no. <laughs> it's not... It's not quite that. It's just the fact that the different sides of a Skype conversation will drift in such a way that I'll have to deal with sort of people I'd probably have to deal with people ending up talking about at the same time and long stretches of silence and stuff and I don't want to really deal with it. If we were all in the same studio with three different mics and a mixer and I had the equipment to record three separate tracks, then I would do that. But doing that kind of thing over Skype is a little awkward. Can I just say how weird it was to see the forum comments about the most recent episode when people were praising it when I felt least comfortable about it of all of them? (laughs) Was this person raised by weasels? Why would you even say that? I wouldn't uh, say raised by wolves because wolves have more manners. All right. Fix it. Fix it. I'm like, okay, that's a section end. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go run a marathon or something. Okay, section break. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm not throwing a housewarming party, not having people ruin my house. <laughs> anyway. Oh, you know what I thought was so adorable? I was watching this quiz show, and this guy like tried to do a freight a fake French accent, but instead of doing the French R with, like, the trill, he did an actual uvular stop, and I was like, so close, but not there. (laughs) And I've never heard anyone, like, mess it up with, like, a uvular stop before. (laughs) Dear God, stop whistling. (laughs) About the second day in, he's like, Mm -hmm. so what is the difference between a dialect and a language? And we were like, no, (laughs) we don't ever want to have to explain this.